morning. I'm Daniel by one of the pastors here, and uh, I invite you this morning to join us as we continue to journey through what we call God's attributes. These are different uh, attributes that we ascribe to God as we try to understand Him. And we started three weeks ago with one attribute called God is always the same, or God is unchangeable. And then the next week we went and we said God is, God knows it all. So He is all-knowing, or omniscient. And then we also, last week we looked at God is always in control, or all-powerful, omnipotent. And this morning we are going to look at another one. It's called God is righteous, or just. So I want to point from the beginning that justice and righteousness are interchangeable words this morning. And if you look in the scripture, especially in the Old Testament, they come together many times. It's justice, the Lord, the ways of the Lord are justice, are just, and His righteous, and they are righteous. Or, you know, uh, His righteousness endures forever, and His ways are always just, or something like that. So they are interchangeable, justice and righteousness. But as we look at the text, uh, you know, if you look at the text for this morning, it says, uh, Psalm 113, verse 3. And this is what it says, Glorious and majestic are His deeds, and His righteousness endures forever. Let me just uh, ask you, you know, when, when you think of a, of a mistrial, you know, famous mistrial or, or something like that, what comes to your mind? Just, just throw some names, you know. A famous mistrial or... Which one? O.J. O.J. Simpson, yeah. What else? Well, that was the first time, right? Because the second time they got it right or something. <laughs> you see, we say the second time they got it right, you know. So we have a moral, we made a moral statement there. What else? Anything else that comes to mind? Something famous, even if it's not a mistrial, but something famous. that When you think of the, the system of justice in this country, what, what comes to your mind? Which one? Casey Anthony. Yeah, Casey Anthony. You see, for me, being from Europe, from Romania, it's also important what they do in Europe. So they, they bring to, to justice these dictators or these abusers, like Slobodan Milosevic and other, other guys like that. For me, it's important that too. So anything else besides these three? What comes to your mind? The trial of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So you see, uh, even today... Maybe some lawyers are working with people on the death row. And what they try to do is they try to prove that a sentence of a judge was wrong. And they try to find something, especially if, if, if they, they feel that that's a hero of some movement or some, uh, you know, some, somehow represents something in this country or in, in the world. Then they try to say, well, let me, let's go back to the records. And they, they, they analyze and they study everything so that they prove that the sentence was wrong. So that they prove that the person who was declared guilty is not guilty, in fact. But what the psalm says is that glorious are majest- and majestic are God's deeds. They are glorious. It cannot be glorious if it's not just. Nothing that is not just, it cannot be glorious. It's wicked, twisted. So, and he says, and righteousness, and your righteousness, Lord, endures forever, or your justice. When God declares something, it stays forever. It never changes. He never, he never has a mistrial. You see, when Satan and his angels decided to go against God, 
That was their last chance. Have you ever thought about it? There's no, there's no, what do you call it, appeal for them? Christ came to die for people, but not for angels. So Satan and his angels are lost forever. There is no redemption for them. There is no atonement for them. They are lost. But it's God's decision. decision, And it's just. And it stays like that forever. He is very different than us. We may have mistrials. We may have people in jail. But what, what do we say? We say, it's better to let nine guilty people walk away in our system of justice than to condemn one that is not guilty than to put him in jail as guilty. So that's why we talk about in our system of justice, we talk the reasonable doubt, you know, beyond the reasonable doubt, you know, and then we, when we try to do that. God is not like that. When he pronounces something just and something unjust, it is like that. There is no question about it. And we'll see how he can be righteous. In one of our confessions, the Belgian confession, this is what we say. We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is only one God who is a simple, and we'll look at that later, a simple and spiritual being. He is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, which is God can never change. We looked at that. Infinite, almighty, all-powerful light, perfectly wise, all-knowing, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. And that's one of our confessions. It basically states in a summary what we believe about God and His attributes. And this morning, we are going to look at His attribute, just. God is righteous. God is just. But how, when you look around, right, when you look around in this world, how can God be just? How is God righteous? You know, this is a moral attribute. And it's so easy to look at God and what He does in the world, or what we do, or what He allows to happen in the world. And it's so easy. One of the, the, the easiest or the strongest objections to the faith and to the rule of God in the world is His justice. People look at what happened in the world, either a natural disaster or a man-caused disaster or an illness, a, uh, something like a virus or something that kills people, and they say, God is not just, you see. If there is a God, then He is unjust. Because look what happened. How can He allow this thing? Where was He when this, thing ha- when this or that happened? So it's so easy when we talk about this is a moral attribute of God. The other three are not. They, they, they were just studied. This one is moral. It's about ethics and moral. And all of us are moral beings because we are making decisions moral decisions, and we are accountable for our decisions. We can choose this or that, good or wrong. And sometimes you say, well, it's fuzzy, it's gray in the middle. Well, it is for us, but not for God. Sometimes it might look like that, but in the end, He will know how to sort things out. So how is God righteous? First of all, I want to say He is the perfect judge. If you think of the law courts and the system of justice in this country, you usually have... The law, which come from the lawgivers, and let's say that uh, these are state or uh, federal you know, uh, representatives, they make the laws, either on Capitol Hill or here in Lansing, for our state. And then on the other side, you have judges. And if you um, want to stand between the lawmakers and the judges, what is between them? What do they refer to? When a judge looks at the law, 
what is the standard by which it's, that law is analyzed or judged? Let's say they took Obamacare, right? And went to the Supreme Court to decide what? What was the standard? Yeah, they said, is, it, is that law of the lawmakers, the, the nine Supreme Justice said, is that constitutional? Is that according to a standard that is above everybody else? The Constitution. Now, with God, He is the perfect judge, you know. He doesn't need, there's nothing lacking in Him. He's perfect. There's no loss or gain in Him. He is the same. There's nothing that He grows in knowledge or He loses in knowledge. You see, with God, it's not like with men. Often, people that we looked up to, they, they can lie to us, they can betray us, they can deceive us, they can mislead us, but not so with God. When we come to God, we have to leave all of that cynicism about how we treat each other, about the injustices that we have seen or experienced, because He is the perfect judge. He is the perfect judge. He brings justice to a situation, and he looks at any person, any situation, and he says, based on what I see, it's either he is favorable, or he gives a sentence, and he is unfavorable. But he is never, he is never caught between two things, like the lawmakers and the justices and the Constitution, because God is also the lawmaker. He's not only a judge, but he makes the laws. You see, that's the difference between us and him. What he says, and in a way, the definition of God's justice is just one of them, is God is justice. Not only just, he's justice. God is righteous. He loves justice. But he, just as he is love, we say God is love. That's a verb. But also God is justice. Attribute, but also verb. God is not only just. He is justice himself. When he says something, when he says, you shall not kill, that law is just. He doesn't need to go to any other external law, constitution, or whatever you want, and say, well, is that right? And then look from, from the standpoint of a justice. Is, that, is my law right? No, everything in God comes together. When he says something, is a law that is just. Any ordinance, any rule that he gives is perfect righteous. He cannot, in fact, even though we say God is all-powerful, right? he cannot do a few things. And one of them is he cannot say anything wrong. He cannot lead us into a lie. You know, he cannot deceive us. God cannot commit a sin. You know, he is unable to sin. Paul says if he will do that, he will deny himself. He doesn't deny himself. God is a unified being. And we'll see that later. So, in God, unlike in us, we find perfect justice because He is not only the judge, He is also the lawgiver, and He is also the Constitution in Himself. He doesn't have to check with anybody if it's justice because there's no other higher court, there's no other external force or law or moral code that can force God and say, well, from that point of view, you are right or wrong on this decision. Because God himself, he will never say anything right, wrong. He will always be right and just and righteous. You see, often we, when we go to war as a country, or there is a war that you know, has to be led, people say, well, is this a just war? You know, God doesn't have to debate. 
If God says, go to war, that's the right thing to do. And nobody ever will be able to say, you made the wrong decision, because he never makes the wrong decision. He is the perfect lawgiver. And then we said in our confession that he is a simple being, which means he doesn't have parts. You see, if you look at a man, and I didn't have a man better than this one I took it this morning, I mean, from my son. But, you know, let's pretend this is a man, right? So you have something like a man. You know, in us, we are body, uh, we are body made of, you know, flesh and blood. But also we are um, made of spirit, soul, right? And sometimes we say mind, spirit, body, three things, or mind, uh, or soul, spirit, and body. We see, but we are made of parts. You can look at us and say, yeah, this is your mind, this is your heart, and this is your body, right? When you die, your body dies, we say as Christians. But at the same time, in us, there are parts, you know? And I just want to, ex- to explain better, maybe by pulling this apart. I'm going to try to, you know? So, we are pulled, for example... By our feelings, you know. So one feeling says, let's call this mercy. And we are pulled by this force. And this is mercy. And on the other hand, we have another maybe force that says justice. I'm just, I don't know what to Just put ahead, okay? So, and it says justice, right? So we are pulled between these two. And many times we explain people that we are, we are caught. We, when we make a decision, it is between mercy and justice. And that's true, and it was in the old, old times, you know. Uh, many times, uh, even the Greeks and, and um, the Romans, they had this, they called it Lady Mercy and Lady Justice. And they were pulling forces, you know, and maybe, maybe as a father, and many times I, I, I had that experience, you know, some, some, something David did, and I had to punish him. And my first reaction was, justice, you know, kind of say, well, for one month, no more screens, you know, no more TV, no more uh, iPod, no more nothing, screens, you know. But then, my mercy said, well, but is that too harsh, maybe? So I said, okay, maybe 10 days or a week or something, you know. So then you start to negotiate, right, and say, well, between mercy and justice. You know, what, what's the right punishment here, you know, discipline for this, this act, you know. How do you teach the son a lesson without being too harsh, right? So you are caught between mercy and justice. But I want to say that in God, there is no such a thing. He is a unified being. God is more like a diamond. I don't have a diamond. This is the closest I have in my house to a diamond. You know, it's, it's a Harley Davidson inside, you know. But uh, it's, it's basically, it's one piece, you know. So when you look at God, I mean, this is just a representation. It's not, when you look at God, He is one. And that's what Deuteronomy says. Listen, Israel, the Lord your God is one. Is He's one piece. He's not caught between mercy and justice. He has these attributes, like just mercy. He's merciful. He is just. He is loving, He is all-knowing, all-powerful, He is love. And all of these are just facets of one single diamond. In Him, there is no fighting. That's why He can be perfect. All of them come together and they work together. When God looks at us, we are either justified or covered, and, we, and He approves of us, or we are unjustified or uncovered by the blood of Christ, And then we are under the punishment. And then he gives us a sentence. We are either guilty or not guilty. And all of his attributes work together in harmony. It's not like he is mind over body or or mind over heart. You know, his heart 
The mercy tells him to do something. No. All, all of his attributes work together. When he comes to judge something, he doesn't need information. He doesn't need to do research. He doesn't need to say, well, well let's, let's postpone the trial five months so I can gather the data. Everything is clear for him. He knows exactly where we stand and how we stand before him. We can be schizophrenic because we are pulled by so many forces. God is never like that. Everything is in harmony in him. How is God just? He stays the same. He never goes, goes from better to worse or from worse to better. There is no change in him. His sovereignty will always prevail. And his sovereignty will always make his justice prevail. He is not compelled by an exterior law to act justly. There is no law that tells him from behind, do that because he's right. Do the other thing because he's just. Everything is in him. One piece. One simple being is a unity. He is the ultimate judge, the ultimate lawmaker, the ultimate constitution, the absolute ruler of all things. One day he will judge everybody and everything with justice. And righteousness will prevail even when now we feel there's no justice, there's no righteousness. He will fix all those things one day. Justice and mercy in God work together. He is not pulled by them. And he will always, he will always deliver justice. He is making no mistakes. How is God righteous? By being a perfect law. And then the second question is, how can he spare? How can he spare the wicked? If he is the perfect judge, he is perfect righteous. And if you look at us and so much wickedness in the world, how can he spare the wicked? Anselm, one of the, one of the Middle East, I mean, Middle Age um, theologians, he said, how can God forgive and uphold and support somebody who is wicked? How is the wicked going to survive? You see, the principle that works in the Bible and with God is this. Ezekiel says, the soul that sin shall die. That's what God told Abraham, uh, Adam and Eve. If you, if you do that, you shall surely die. I like what Paul says in Romans. All have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, all of us, all of us. It's so hard to tell this to your unbelieving friend. The secular society. Just go, just, just, just think of a place, maybe a friend or somebody in your family. It's so hard to tell them all of us have sinned. And even if you say you have sinned or all of us have sinned, they will say, so what? Well, this is the problem. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is dead. So you cannot just say, so what? Everybody does it. Yeah, that's true. Everybody does it. But everybody is under the condemnation of that. You see, another confession says like this. God is most just, which is what we studied today, and terrible in his judgment. Hating all sin. He hates all sin. And who will, bring, will by no means clear the guilty? By no means God is looking at a guilty person and said, not guilty, just because... Just because. And by no means God will look at a, a not guilty person, 
a justified person and say guilty. He will never make that mistake. But his judgment is terrible, terrible in his judgment. So how can God spare the wicked? All of us are under the sentence of death. All of us receive this sentence. So just think of yourself on the death row. All of us are dead men walking. We walk to our death. All of us. The moment we come into this world. You know, I just talked to somebody and said, well, it's hard to know when we become conscious. You know, when, when do we, when a fetus, you know, in the mother's womb becomes conscious. We don't even know. And nobody knows yet. You know, they are starting to study. When is consciousness you now coming? But I will say this. All of us who are born into this world are under the sentence of death. Because we are not only born sinners, we are banned to sin. And God says that the soul that sins shall die. He will not change that. So if you look around at people that have not walked with God yet, have not met Christ and His grace, they are walking literally to their eternal death. And that's why we are called as a church to have mercy, to extend God's grace to everyone. We are under the sentence of death. And the only solution is Christ's atonement. Well, you can go and do, like we have this, uh, you know, program at, 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 uh, at Townline School, you know. And by 68, by Townline, we have Streams of Hope. And we do a lot of community development. And we do a lot of Kids Hope mentoring. And, and Townline Bible. And we, we help people there. But ultimately, we only can help them have a better life for a short time. Or maybe, maybe, maybe function better for a short time. But in the, light, in, in the span of, in the light of eternity. Only Christ at home can fix their sentence of death. Because our death is eternal. Our separation from God is eternal. Look what Paul says. What is atonement? We say, well, is atonement a biblical term? It's right from the Bible. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, says Paul. A sacrifice of atonement or propitiation through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. In the ancient time when somebody went to war, let's say a nation went to war, they went to the God of war and brought gifts so that the God of war will look favorable. And by his favor to help in the war. That is a tone. You propitiate. You buy the favor of the God. If you were a commercial, uh, you were in commerce and you had to ship a load uh, on the seas, then you will go to the God of the seas, Neptune, and say, Well, can I have a, a, a smooth sailing, you know, so that my cargo can get from point A to point B so I can make some money and have my business succeed? If you were a farmer or if you wanted kids, you went to the God of fertility, of of, of um, prosperity. And you said, can I buy your favor? Can I atone so that you are favorable towards me? So that my crop will grow and I will have a harvest and I will be able to sell it. So that I can have kids and raise a family. That's atonement. And Paul says, even explains in Corinthians, he says, God made Christ who had no sin to be seen for us. So that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So that through Christ, and one way even Nicky Gumbel at Alpha explains, you know, and uh, Nicky says, in Christ, we have been uh, declared, we who are guilty and he who was not guilty, 
God took our guilt and put it on Christ so that we can go up to heaven to Him and have a relationship with Him that will last for eternity. And Christ can pay for our sin because He was not guilty and go to hell in our place so we don't have to go. And all of the sin that we needed to pay for is put on Christ. That is called substitutionary atonement. We are substituted. Christ took our place. So, will a world, will our fellow uh, 21st century people believe it? What would they say? I like what Bill Hybels used this guy. And, and before you find out, just, just imagine yourself going to your friend who is a non-believer or to a family member and saying this. There is no one righteous. Not even one. This is what Paul does in the first three chapters of Romans. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. This is a message that our society and culture reject. There is no one who does good. They will say, are you kidding? Not even one. And this is not only the message of Paul. It's the message of Psalms. And the whole Bible says, there is no one who seeks God. Yeah, there is common grace. People can do good, but no one who seeks God. So this, this professor that uh, wrote this book, Kilpatrick, Why Johnny Can Tell Right from Wrong. And uh, basically he says that something happened. Something happened. And Bill Hybels used this. So I, I like this illustration. Something happened in the last 300 years. And he said, until 1700, about, you know, so for 1700 years from the birth of Christ, people looked up to God to learn what it means to be just, what is right and what is wrong. But something happened. You know, it was God that they looked up to. God gave us the revelation, both natural and in, in the scripture, in nature, but also in scripture. And then with our reason, we understood it. We believed and we tried to make, make sense of his laws and live in a society. But then something happened. And our reason wanted more power. So then we looked at the Bible as just a book that has to be criticized, whether or not God really, really meant those words that we read here. And then by the end of the 18th century... The reason replaced God, not only on top of the scripture, but on top of God. So then, what Immanuel Kant did, and uh, what, what we call rationalism, this is a, a philosophical term, but basically it means the age of reason, what happened is, people started to say, you don't, you know, really, the Bible is not reliable, how can you believe in a God that reveals himself in the Bible that's not reliable? The most reliable thing is to follow your mind. Now, those of you who our philosophers or whatever in the field, just, just bear with me and you can tell me in the end if I'm wrong, okay? But this is what Kilpatrick does. So, your mind, basically, they say, is able to solve everything. Follow your thoughts. Do you know, do you know what's, wrong, uh, what's wrong and right? Just ask your mind and your mind will tell you. And then what happened also, this is Rousseau, the father of the French Revolution, and he said, well, it's not only your mind, you know, the more important thing is your heart. You know, what do you love, you know? People are naturally good, so if they follow their heart, they will get to the right place. They will get the right and wrong figured out. If you want to have a moral society, just follow your heart, and everybody will live peacefully and, and selflessly, and, and everybody will love each other. Follow your heart. It's called romanticism. Well, that, that was also changed by Nietzsche and by many people who, uh, like him, we call nihilism, and especially moral nihilism, which basically claims that God is dead, so therefore, the only thing that is left for you and for me is to fight for power, and if you want power, you have to follow your will for power. 
And that's why, for example, it was easy for Hitler to decide, well, the Jews are the problem. They need to be eliminated. And there was not a problem to eliminate because you decide what's right and wrong. And if you have a purpose and somebody stands in your way, it's okay to do whatever to accomplish that that, uh, purpose. Follow your will to power. And they call this whole process enlightenment. The man suddenly became free and enlightened. Kilpatrick calls this the darkening. Instead of the dark ages, he calls enlightenment the darkening of the human society, of the human mind. We lost so much through that. But that's the contemporary view, right? And then if you want to look at... um, what God calls us. I like, uh, what, what, you know, the question is then, so what is God requiring of us? I like Nicholas Walterthorpe. He wrote the book on justice. And he said, every time you read in the Bible justice, God is you mentioning at least one of these four categories. Vulnerable people, the, the downtrodden, widow, orphan, immigrant, and the poor. And I will give you one example. In Deuteronomy, he says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality. He's the perfect judge, right? And accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens for yourself who are alien in Egypt. Orphans, widows, single parents, the poor, the oppressed. And then Micah kind of tops it up. And Micah says, what does the Lord require of you? Simply to act, act justly. Act justly towards people. Love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Treat people fairly. Show them justice. But also put yourself, if you haven't, under the atonement of Christ Jesus. And I like, uh, you know, right now it's very popular, the movie Les Miserables. You know, Les Miserables, Les Mis. And this is an older version of the movie, not the musical. But uh, there is a point where Jean Valjean comes to a bishop's house and then he uh, rob, robs him in the middle of the night. So there is a punch there in the, in the, in the scene. But then the priest kind of tries to, to show him what means redemption. And it's a powerful redemption story. And I think that that's what God calls us to, to act justly and love mercy. There's no more merciful act than this one. So I want you to follow, uh, to, to just look at this scene from the movie. Let me
tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed that you gave it to him. Yes? Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gila, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? I, Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that uh, we can have this hope in Christ Jesus, that he is our atonement. He is the one that uh, brings your favor upon us. So we put our trust in him. We thank you that you have an eye for us, that you look and search us, and you search for us, and that you offer to us your forgiveness when we cry for your help. So we thank you this morning that we, in Christ Jesus, we belong to you. We do not belong anymore to evil, to injustice, to fear and hatred. But you call us to walk humbly with you and to show others what it means to act justly and to love mercy. And we pray that that mercy and justice will follow all the days of our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Would you please stand and receive God's greeting. The God who loves us, the God who calls us to walk with him humbly blesses us with his words. May the love of God the Father, the fellowship of his Holy Spirit, and the power of Christ Jesus be with you in this coming week. Amen. You may walk, you may go in peace.